And a week later, I received a piece from the South African Zionist Federation in Israel entitled, South Africa Almost Tops Anti-Semitism Charts. The Jewish Report article was based on a talk by a senior researcher at the Jewish Board of Deputies who reported that South Africa had a relatively low rate of anti-Semitism. It was 10 times higher in the UK, France, and Argentine, 15 times higher in Australia, and 20 times higher in Canada and Germany. The figures had been calibrated in terms of anti-Semitic incidents. The low number was attributed to dormant far-white organizations coupled with an anti-racist ethos in post-apartheid South Africa, buttressed by South Africa's so-called Chapter 9 institutions, such as the Human Rights Commission, and by the values embedded in the new constitution. On the other hand, the Zionist Federation based their claim that South Africa almost tops anti-Semitism charts on a Pew Global survey of 2008, which found that South Africans, along with Spaniards, Mexicans, and Brazilians, held some of the most negative views of Jews outside of the Muslim world. According to that survey, 46% of South Africans harbored unfavorable views of Jews, and of those 46%, two-thirds disliked Jews in the extreme. A much lower figure of 11% was recorded in Australia, which had more incidents. What one has here, on the one hand, measures by incidents, and on the other, measures by attitudes. What should we make of the differences? Certainly, we should not discount the role of ideas, especially in specific political contexts. In South Africa, for example, a serious Jewish question was experienced in the 1930s and 40s, when at a time of heightened ethno-nationalism, ideas about the Jews were transformed by the radical Afrikaner white right into programmatic anti-Semitism. Today, this white right with its conspiratorial views of Jewish wealth, power, and influence has effectively disappeared. In its heyday in the 1930s and early 1940s, movements such as the Grey Shirts, the Oswald Brandbach, the New Order, all clearly inspired by Nazism, were a serious menace. These ideas eroded rapidly after the Second World War. Classic Jew baiting was restricted to a fringe ultra-right element. In the early 60s, the apartheid government questioned Jewish loyalty when Israel supported the African bloc in the United Nations, and from time to time reminded Jews of their disproportionate involvement in anti-apartheid activities. But in the new democratic South Africa, the white right is of marginal concern. On the other hand, the black or African majority has shown some proclivity towards anti-Jewish prejudices. While historically these victims of apartheid struggled to overthrow white minority rule and certainly never focused specifically on Jews when articulating grievances and aspirations, studies from the early 1970s show that the black population is not immune to anti-Jewish prejudice. In recent times, industrial protests have occasionally identified specifically Jewish capitalists and anti-Semitic placards have been displayed at a number of strikes around the country. In the wake of the 2009 Gaza War, anti-Zionist protests led by the Labour Federation of Kasaji raised the possibility of targeting specifically Jewish businesses. In some circles, Jewish loyalties question. But on the whole, the black African population cannot be accused of widespread anti-Semitism. 
when it comes to the Muslim population, less than 2% of the total population, but relatively influential, when it comes to this population, things are different. Many Muslims share conspiratorial ideas of the old far-right white right, manifested in letter columns of the daily press and articulated in radio talk shows. Although the focus of their rhetoric is Zionism, their language often reveals classic anti-Jewish tropes. Jews or Zionists have become, at least for some critics, diabolical evil. This was best captured in the comments made by South Africa's former Deputy Foreign Minister, Fatima Hajjai, at an anti-Zionist rally in January 2009. She spoke in vitriolic terms of Jewish money controlling the United States and Western Europe. Holocaust denial has also crept into Muslim anger. In 1996, a Muslim radio station had to apologize for airing an interview with Dr. Ahmed Huber, who spoke of the Holocaust swindle. And in May 1998, the same radio station interviewed Dr. Yaqub Zaki, who besides claiming that the million-plus Jews who died in the Second World War died of infectious diseases, spent much of his time engaged with elaborate Jewish conspiracies. Shortly after the Cape Town Holocaust Center was established in 1998, a leading Muslim newspaper recommended readers acquaint themselves with the work of Arthur Butts and other denialists. It was thus no surprise that the Protocols of the Elders of Zion went on sale at the Durban Conference in 2001. Yet, despite these developments, one cannot talk of classical anti-Semitism having any serious traction in South Africa today. The public discourse is inclusive and non-racial as opposed to exclusivist as it was in the 1930s when the country had, as I mentioned earlier, a serious Jewish question. Pluralism, multiculturalism, religious tolerance, and what's known as rainbowism, the rainbow nation, the very antithesis of ethno-nationalism is celebrated in South Africa. Cultural rights and religious freedoms are enshrined in the new South African constitution. This has the potential to take sharpness out of ethnic conflict while militating against anti-Semitism. Of course, in some countries, multiculturalism has led to a dangerous identity politics, especially on the part of Muslims. So far, this has not been the case in South Africa. Muslims were part of the struggle, the liberation struggle, for generations and appreciate the new constitutional order. One also needs to note the condemnation of anti-Semitism by political leaders in recent years. An apology from the Deputy Foreign Minister Fatima Hajjai following her tirade I mentioned earlier, it's not without significance. She was not reappointed in Jacob Zuma's cabinet. Given the ANC's historical opposition to racism, the climate today for opposing Classical anti-Semitism in South Africa publicly is more favorable than it has been in the past. When it comes to anti-Zionism, things are markedly different. In particular, it is noteworthy that hostility penetrates into the highest echelons of government. For many, the very notion of an allegedly exclusivist and colonialist Jewish state is anathema. This worldview has a long history deeply embedded in the liberation struggle. As far back as 1955, the ANC's Freedom Charter stressed the unity of South Africa and opposed the politics of ethnicity or tribalism. Intellectually, liberation was underpinned by a critique 
of the dangers of ethnic mobilization as evident in the Afrikaner national movement. These ideas were further reinforced from the 1960s by Marxian currents within the academy, both in South Africa and abroad. Scholars deconstructed ethnicity while demonstrating how it was being manipulated and used in South Africa as a means to divide and rule, palpable in the apartheid project with its proposed puppet ethnic homelands. A broadly third-worldist anti-colonial worldview evolved among exiled and domestic activists. They took a decidedly dyspeptic view of the West, its support for the apartheid state, and the Pretoria-Jerusalem axis that had evolved from the early 1970s. These ideas were fed by growing anti-Zionist literature that demonized the Jewish state. In particular, Muslims in South Africa acquainted themselves with this literature. Painted the outcome of the Six-Day War, buoyed at the Zionism equals racism resolution of 1975 in the UN, and radicalized by the Soweto uprising of 1976, Muslims were increasingly radicalized. They were further encouraged by the overthrow of the Shah in Iran and the success of Khomeinism. Although the Muslim voice carried little weight with most whites in, South Africa, in apartheid South Africa, it is arguable that they added muster and substance to the broad left's position, including white progressives who began to voice their support for what they saw as the legitimate anti-colonial struggle of the Palestinian people. By the late 1980s, an increasingly radicalized left criticized Israel as an exclusivist apartheid state. At the United Nations, the chief representative of the ANC, still in exile at that time, put it bluntly, and I quote, the South African people have never approved of Zionism. They see parallels of apartheid and Zionism, and therefore their struggle against apartheid automatically has overtones of anti-Zionism, which is not the same thing as being anti-Jewish. These views were shared by a senior member of the United Democratic Front, the internal wing, effectively, of the ANC. Zionism, explained one spokesman, was simply racism. Because Zionism says we close our ranks on an ethnic basis. We take care of the Jewish interests. If you are Jewish, it's okay. If you are not Jewish, out. The former president of the Africanist Azalian political organization, Ishmael Machabella, took a similar view claiming that Zionism was a form of religious discrimination, which was, in his view, the same as the racial discrimination faced by blacks in South Africa. This alleged exclusivity ran counter to the non-racial and inclusive outlook of the liberation movement, both exile and domestic. With it went, went a sense of unease with a Jewish state, and as the Reverend Frank Chicani, the Secretary General of the South African Council of Churches put it, an easy sympathy for the PLO. There's no doubt, said one prominent civic leader in the 1980s, I quote, that black Africans tend to identify with the PLO. Let's be clear about this. There's a perception of the Israeli Arab conflict as one of almost colonialism of a white race coming out of Europe. Such ideas have survived and are now a staple of trade union activism. In addition, the English language media, largely owned since 1994 by the Irishman Tony O'Reilly's independent group, the media reinforced these positions. Columnists like Robert Fisk and John Coulter 
regularly poison a hostile anti-Zionist atmosphere. When Yasser Arafat spoke in South Africa's parliament in 1998, he was applauded when he referred to Zionism as racism. This, despite the notion, run counter to the ANC's stated position on the Arab-Israeli conflict, that is, accepting a Jewish state alongside a Palestinian state. Even 9-11 did not temper hostility. On the 23rd of October 2001, the Minister of Water Affairs, Ronnie Casserles, a communist Jew, a member of the ANC underground for 30 years, and a senior commander of its military wing, he read a statement on the Middle East in the National Assembly of Parliament during a special Middle East debate, which discussed a report of a fact-finding committee that had visited the Middle East. Casserles and his ANC colleague, Max Zazinski, member of the regional provincial legislature, then circulated the statement, slightly amended with a view to getting as many Jewish signatures. The final declaration was launched under the banner, Not In My Name, signed by only 284 Jews, its population of 75,000, but had widespread support beyond the Jewish community, including the ANC and the media. Castrols had compared the discourse of chosenness in Zionism with, and again I quote, the way Afrikaner trekkers also used it, the way many historical movements had done to advance the cause of particular people. It's an exclusivity which gives rise to racism and all sorts of negative things. This notion of exclusivity manifest in the ethno-national state has always raised problems for the left. It challenges a deep-seated universalism. And in addition, the apparent success of South Africa's so-called miracle has further undermined the Zionist idea. That is to say, commentators increasingly ask why Israelis and Palestinians cannot follow the South African example and establish a single constitutional state which includes Jews and Palestinians. They compare Zionists with apartheid ideologues of old and see Hamas and Islamic Jihad as demonized in much the same way as the apartheid government had demonized the ANC in exile. They argue that Israel, like the apartheid government, wants to cut a deal only with moderates like Hamas. In this context, support for a two-state solution is rapidly eroding. One well-known former liberal newspaper editor, Alistair Sparks, repeatedly contends that such a solution is untenable. Israel's lack of will to remove the settlements coupled with demographic realities, he argues, has precluded this option. Like South Africa's Bantustan policy, it was a nice idea in theory to separate rival groups living in one country so that each can have its own national homeland. Sounds like a moral solution provided the separation is fair and the homelands are viable. In building his case, Sparks recalls how the apartheid planners had also denied demographic realities in their dream of a white South Africa. But eventually, he reminds us, they had to face the truth. Sparks' great source is the book One State Solution by Virginia Tilly, an American academic now resident in South Africa and rubbing shoulders in high places. Sparks regularly draws parallels between Israel and South Africa and sees the Israel-Palestinian conflict through a South African prison. The fact remains, he argues, and I quote, that many ethno-nationalisms grapple with the problem of other ethnic groups in their midst. The new South Africa has not required the forfeiture of the Afrikaner homeland. 
I well remember the dark warnings uttered from pulpit and platform over half my working life that one man, one vote would mean the national suicide of the Afrikaner folk and that they would never, ever contemplate it. I've mentioned Spalter's views in some detail because they have wide resonance and reflect attitudes among the chattering class, particularly within the government, which is informed by a mantra of non-racism, opposition to ethnic politics, a powerful anti-colonialism, support for the underdog, and a particular understanding of South Africa's so-called miracle. Put simply, there's a general antipathy towards ethnic concerns. South African politics notes Oman Gilemi, a leading South African historian, is informed by a dogmatic or intransigent universalism. Its point of departure, explains Gilbert, is that race or ethnicity as a principle of social organization is essentially irrational and ephemeral and that there is no need to make any concessions to it. What this boils down to is the unshakable conviction that there is not much more to racial or ethnic identification than the legacy of apartheid classification. With this mindset, the Palestinian struggle is seen as a classic anti-colonial struggle, and the parallels with black resistance in South Africa are taken even further. Many believe that the Palestinians were offered bantu stands at Camp David in 2000, akin to what the homeland leaders were offered under apartheid. This, they maintain, will replicate the historic migrant labor system so powerful in the South African consciousness. To use the late Tony Judd's term for many South African elites, including radical Jews, Israel is an anachronistic ethnic state. Zionism has become associated with exclusivism and expansionism. Its policy, it is a policy that to me looks like it has very many parallels with racism, explains Nobel laureate Desmond Tutu. Tutu is widely supported in the electronic and print media. A philosopher at the University of the Western Cape went so far as to advocate outlawing the South African Zionist Federation. Such views have been maturing for decades and are inextricably linked to a specific South African past. While the ANC's commitment to multilateralism and the United Nations ensure support for a two-state settlement, at least for the time being, it seems to me that elites driven and informed by activists, many of them Muslim, will continue to push for ties between Pretoria and Jerusalem to be cut. Yet it needs to be noted that a Pew Global Project Attitude Survey conducted in urban areas in South Africa in 2007 reported greater sympathy for Israel than for the Palestinians. The survey indicated that 28% of South Africans sided with Israel in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, as opposed to 19% with the Palestinians. 19% sympathized with both the Israelis and the Palestinians and the rest. No, it was. <laughs> Perhaps this is because the majority of South African blacks are Christian, with a deep attachment to the so-called Holy Land. It also needs to be said that the Muslim community is not monolithic. Many Muslims are progressive, emphasizing Islamic humanism and universalism, Others, of course, are conservative or Islamist at odds with religious pluralism and ecumenism. But there is a broad anti-Zionism, shared, as I've said, by many in the highest echelons of government. 
There are repeated calls, especially from activist groups like the Palestine Solidarity Committee and the Trade Union Federation, repeated calls to break diplomatic and trade relations with Israel. Hamas is popular among many Muslims. Only two months ago, a former Minister of Education and Intellectual within the ANC, Professor Kada Asmal, called on the world to deny legitimacy to Israel. It is time to delegitimize this entity, he wrote in the weekly Mail and Guardian, while reflecting on the Goldstone Report and the Gaza Flotilla. The Thinker, an intellectual monthly recently founded by former President Mbeki's right-hand man, the Minister and the President's Esopahad, included vitriolic anti-Israel comment in the latest issue. Memories are short. The drama of the Jewish suffering in the diaspora and the rebirth of the Jewish state have receded into the distant past. Regular television footage of Israeli forces in the territories, interminable talk shows dominated by anti-Zionists, and an outpouring of literature comparing apartheid South Africa to Israel continue to undermine the idea of a Jewish state. For many elites in South Africa, Zionism is a 19th century ethno-national movement caught off sides in the 21st century. Thank you very much, Milton. Uh, the next speaker is Professor Shalem Koulibaly. Shalem, uh, a friend and colleague and brother, will be speaking on Africa and anti-Semitism, myth or reality, from indifference to anti-Semitic temptation. Professor Koulibaly is a professor of philosophy in Ouagadougou University in Burkina Faso. He's a taught uh, general, general philosophy and history <laughs> at the University of Tel Aviv in Jerusalem. And he's, uh, he's he studied actually, he did his graduate degree in Kakadi, uh, University of Kakadi in Abidjan and Ivory Coast, Cote d'Ivoire. And he did his PhD in philosophy at, in Paris at the Sorbonne and is a student or disciple of uh, Emmanuel Levinas. And he's in the process of creating uh, an Emmanuel Levinas Center for African and Jewish dialogue in Ouagadougou. So, honored to have you. I would like to speak to give my speech in Hebrew, but uh, I'm obliged to, to give it in English. So you have to suffer a little with my French African accent. But saying that, I'm not outside of my important part of my <coughs> lecture. I'm going to speak about anti-Semitism in Africa, and mainly uh, Africa under Sahara. When one studies uh, anti-Semitism in the world, we have figures, we have criterion to appreciate anti-Semitism. We know uh, the percentage of white or green anti-Semitic in Europe, in South Africa, where there is some Jewish. But concerning black Africa, concerning Africans, uh, black Africans, there were no figures. So my question is, if one puts the name Africa as a continent uh, face to the world anti-Semitic, if one is going to speak about myth, 
uh, is going to relate reality and give some events that show that uh, African as a continent under Sahara is also concerned with uh, anti-Semitism and the trend of uh, all anti-Semitism. Uh, so my lecture will be in um, two parts. The first is the second, the subtitle of my title, in, from indifference to uh, anti-Semitic temptation. What does that mean? Is to here I want to show the relation between Jewish and African in history. We can resume these uh, relations in three parts. The first part can be say that it concerns uh, ignorance, indifference. And the second part, that means that we, we start from antiquity to the modernity. And from modernity, it means uh, from 1190 to nowadays, Africans and the Jewish face themselves. They stop ignoring each another and start a conflict. And that conflict includes anti-Semitism. But speaking about black anti-Semitism, the problem is what kind of models we can use to evaluate, to appreciate black anti-Semitism. To do so, I want to take the black Africans diaspora anti-Semitism. That means that I will take into account the first Africans diaspora in Western society. That means America. And after America, I will go, I will consider the Africans in Europe. And my question is how the black anti-Semitism went from America to Europe. How some extremists, black Africans, uh, start to build their own vision by uh, uh, teaching some Africans, no uh, Arabs, but black Africans. The third part will concern Africa. My question is, I remember, if nowadays we have such things that we can cause black African anti-Semitism. Here, I will consider some elements. First of all, I will take into account the relation between Africa and Israel. And I will consider also the relation of the vision of some Africans concerning the problem of uh, Palestinians. Thirdly, uh, at the end, I will try to, to see if concerning Africa, we cannot make another evaluation of the concept of Jewish. Because there are some claims, there are some peoples, some ethnic groups who claim to be Jewish, or they want to, they identify themselves to Jewish. So if we are fighting anti-Semitism, what we are going to do with them? 
not only uh, people in Zimbabwe, in Mali, in Rwanda, in Ghana, are claiming or identifying themselves to uh, Judaism, but there are converted people also become Jewish. And the problem is, if tomorrow this person builds synagogue in African Sub-Sahara, under Sahara, what the fight against anti-Semitism will be. So let's start with uh, the first part. How to give a definition of anti-Semitism? I will take Levinas' conception or definition of anti-Semitism. Levinas said that anti-Semitism has to do with psychological problem. It means that one, the person who is anti-Semitic decides in his mind not to accept or to welcome the stranger man. It means that the Jewish is outside of the worldview of the anti-Semitic. And if I decide to think about you, even we are eating, what I can think about you, you never know, and you don't have any right, any possibility to stop my way of thinking. This is anti-Semitism. It exclusions, not because of its reason, but its self-exclusion of the other. The second definition that I want to give to anti-Semitism is that anti-Semitism is a problem of language. Is Western language of dif of differentiation is in philosophical terms a meta racism a language that consider the differentiation between myself, I, and the other, and this other has to be an object in my discourse, in my narrative. Never will become an equal. In terms of epistemology, the order, that means the Jewish, is an object. To clarify or to give an example, Jews start to be good with Palestinians, we want peace. They say, why do you want peace? Okay, I don't want peace. Why you don't want peace? That is, in terms in term of uh, relation between a subject and an object, the Jewish <coughs> reminds in the narrative of anti-Semites uh, an object that we can change at every moment. African Americans, that's good, in a, a minority has adopted anti-Semitism language. They're born with this language, and they come as everyone can use a language, they come to build their own anti-Semitism. So I will give some elements that uh, Stefan, uh, Stefan Greenfield, in his anthology of black anti-Semitism, uh, gives us example. First of all, the particularity of Africans, Africans, American activist anti-Semitism is based on facts, on history, slavery, colonization, 
and social problems. From slavery, before 1945, Jewish and Africans, or Africans, American and Jewish, were in a different stage. They were speaking each another. They were speaking, but there were no relation. If you read uh, the first African-American elite, their writers, they were speaking about Zionist movement like uh, Dubois, like Biden, but there were no relation between Jewish and African. So slavery was compared to pogrom, to the hard difficulties that Jews went from in the story. But from 19, 1945, they start a kind of comparison between Jewish, uh, between Holocaust and uh, slavery. For them, black slavery is worse than Holocaust. That is a comparison. And movement or elites such as the Afrocentric people, the Pan-Africanist people, use the slavery as an argument against Jewish existence. They exclude Jewish sufferings around the Americans' sufferings. Jews didn't suffer as we suffer. From that, what they do, they go on. In 1994, some stu uh, African-American students were using the Western anti-Semitic language, which is based on classical anti-Semites, Semitism discourse, such as Jewish uh, blood sucker, Jews uh, uh, give uh, many kind of illness to Africans. We have in American University young African American who fight uh, Jewish uh, by accusing them that they give uh, they are uh, responsible for activity among African Americans. But what is interesting here and which is specific is the expression as I learned my mother tongue here they. They use the Western anti-Semitic language to evaluate their own story. That is unique. You suffer, I suffer, but my suffering is worse than yours. The champions people in that rhetoric are the Nation of Islam. Their propaganda didn't stop in America. The same motto that means slavery, social and economical, uh, economic uh, situations is brought to France. Let me say that uh, before 19th in France, there were no problems between Africans, black Africans and Jewish. I was student, young student. I used to, to watch the TV. What we heard at that moment, it was Le Pen, 
was every time fighting Jewish, accusing Jews lobby to control France. That is the discourse from uh, 30s before the Shoah. And as the young students and very scholar in uh, black story, with some friends who start to say, do you remember what Franz Fanon said about uh, uh, anti-Semitism against Jewish? He said that when they start accusing Jewish, insulting them, we African, we have to know that we are the seven on the top. When in 1994, in America, African students were fighting uh, Jewish, we and some friends, we create an association to discuss with Jewish by taking into account into account the problem of slavery, colonization, and memory. It's not easy to work with Jewish and Africans, mainly to try to put them together. In the context of African Americans, Gates, one of specialists of African study, put it like this. The new anti-Semitic among African Americans comes like a fight among African Americans themselves. It's a problem of elite. They want one elite, one part of the elite want to control the mass of African Americans. But I don't accept this definition, this perception. The reality is that in the context, from my point of view, Jewish and Africans in America, they are fighting for the state. Everyone wants to be in the light, in the center of the theater. In France, in Europe, Africans, Europeans, start at the end of 90, to adopt the rhetoric of African Americans extremists. First of all, there are there were Africans who are very educated. They know uh, all the work of Kwame Nkrumah, so that means they are pan Africanists. They know the work of Job, uh, that means that they know. Egyptology, they start looking after the book of Bernard Martins, Black Athena. They start saying that Jewish were never, have never been in Egypt. They are lying. That is a theological position. That was in the, in the beginning of 19. Ten years after, in the beginning of Alpine, um, um, the words and in Hebrew, uh, that is six years ago, a group of African Europeans named the, the family of Kat, Kat is the words of one uh, Greek god leading by uh, Kemi Seba, start 
to fight the truth. They don't only take the rhetoric of nation of Islam, but they want more. They want physical battle. The hostility is physical. They want to eat Jewish. Not only to oppose in the field of uh, politics, <coughs> not economic, but to eat. That means that the rhetoric is not different from the new anti-Semitism, which, uh, which aim is to kill, not to discuss. The problem is now to know if this transfer of black extremists from America to Europe can come to Africa. And if it comes to Africa, what kind of anti-Semitism will have? Can we use, we say that it's a new anti-Semitism, it's African-American anti-Semitism, or it's African-European anti-Semitism? I don't think that uh, saying that it's African-American anti-Semitism, African-European anti-Semitism is to fight anti-Semitism. First of all, it means that we consider Africans like a child. They cannot create something by themselves. They are like making a copy of what exists. I want just to give you some example that it's possible in Africa that we make it uh, the transfer of anti-Semitism in its new forms in Africa. First of all, let's see. African Israel are like uh, a couple. Before they met, they tried to discover each another. And after they get married, the reality sometimes lead them to separate. Mainly, Africa and Israel start the loving party with Kwame Nkrumah, uh, Golda Meir, who was named by African elite, a part of uh, African elite, Mama Africa. But that is a long time ago. The new generation don't have anything to do with Mama Africa. Africa was seen as uh, a third part who can make a junction between Palestinian and Jewish. But it comes that uh, nowadays, Africans by themselves, as independent states, adopt by themselves to politicians, to uh, leaders, and NGOs. They are adopted all the discourse, anti-Zionist discourse. Here is the manifestation six years ago in Dakar. Among these people, we have politicians, 
among these people, we have politicians, students, illiterate persons, and common persons. The newspaper APA Dakar quotes les représentants du gouvernement sénégalais close to the government, as well as the opponents and the NGO and other associations for uh, human rights were fighting, uh, they were against uh, Israel attack of attack of uh, uh, Lebanon. What are the words against Israel? They say Israel aggressions. The state, Hebrew state, is a mother state. Why did why did they attack a civil civilian a civil people? And they hand it, they, they write it, we are all for S Ola. <coughs> What I'm saying as anti new anti-Semitism in African Sub-Sahara has to be uh, joined to the former anti-Semitism, which is Christian's anti-Semitism and Islam anti-Semitism. Both are growing in Africa. In Nigeria, Christians and Af uh, Muslims are fighting. The problem of the, the new new anti-Semitism in Africa's sub-Saharan come from will come from another side. It will come from those who claim or identify themselves to Israel. First of all, in Zimbabwe, there is a tra uh, tribe named Lemba. Uh, there are like uh, eighty thousand people. Some have been converted to Judaism. They have their synagogue, they pray with uh, our books. During, uh, during uh, Amin Dada times, they have problems because they were considered like Jewish and the supporter of Israel. In Mali, there is uh, a group, an ethnic group. They create uh, an association, Zahor, a lead by Aida. He claimed that uh, they are from Jewish, convert, African converted to Judaism. Now they are looking for their roots. Third, in uh, Rwanda, in Rwanda, all the discourses of anti-Semitism, new anti-Semitism rhetoric, has been used to kill Tutsi. In Ghana, the house the house of uh, Israel also claim and identify himself to Israel. My question is, why concerning Africa we don't have people? Why we, we didn't work to really evaluate, to estimate the growing, the growth of anti-Semitism? If tomorrow those who are identifying, identifying themselves to Israel those who are converted to Israel build their own synagogue, should the fight against anti-Semitism exclude them or include them?
That means that Jews are facing a kind of universalization of Judaism. We go back to the to the second century, where in Egypt, some Greek convert to Judaism. Today, <coughs> to deal with anti-Semitism under Sarah, we have also to see or to foresee that Judaism is not going to die, but is going to become strong and strong. That is another fight. If we are able to take into account this Jewish or this new conception of Jewish or Jewish identity, included, including converted Jews to Judaism and those who are, who are enemies and they identify themselves to, to Judaism. To hand, I will say, I will quote some things from a work of uh, a man from Rwanda. He said, since we have been talking about latent anti-Semitism in Africa, it is, it, it is not that when in Rwanda everything has been possible, has been used to compare Tutsi to the Jewish, and they killed them because they were they can be they were considered like falasha. So that means like the Jewish, black Jewish. Thank you.
finished 60 years ago, that's not happening. It, uh, at that time, I, I, I showed proof of that, and, I, and I'm here uh, to do it again. Uh, also, because this is being recorded, and, and, and I like to conserve my health and my freedom, I have to say that what you're about to say is it's only a theory and a product of my imagination. <laughs> Having said that, let's let's start with this with this presentation that has a particular name. It's called Chavez Conversion from Active Military to Military Anti-Semitism. I invite my colleagues if they want to just move over here and they can watch it also. Okay, in the how this happened? Okay, in 1992, Chavez led a coup d'état. Actually, it was two coup d'états, and uh, he was in prison and spent two years in jail in, in Yale prison. Uh, he was pardoned, and here's when the first event comes in. And, and, and please, I mean, the chronology is not going to fit many times because I'm going to have to go back and forth. But uh, at the end, we'll be able to connect the dots of why it's done the way it is. Okay, the first act happened in 1994. When, once Chavez is pardoned, the communists take him to Cuba, where he's received at the head of the, uh, at the bottom of the stairs by Fidel Castro, uh, with head of state honors. And then he's cheered at the National Theater in Cuba. That was his first trip after getting out of jail. His second trip taking him to Argentina. The fascists take him to Argentina, where he relates, for example, to Mohamed Ali Seneldin, a cara pintada, that's the name of a radical fascist movement, and meets his leader, here seen in the uniform in the Falkland Islands War. Also in Argentina, he relates to a shady character, but very intelligent. His name is Norberto Ceresole. He's an ideologue, an anti-Semite, a Holocaust denier, and a roving ambassador to Hezbollah. It's okay, I can do it. <laughs> I got some I got some light in here. Okay, like I said, Ceresol was an anti-Semite, the Holocaust denier, and a roving ambassador of Hezbollah. He's he's very much taken by, by Chavez's personality or Chavez taken by his personality, whatever happens there. Some chemistry started to happening. And he goes to Venezuela with Chavez for two years and becomes the parrot on Chavez's shoulder. <laughs> this is no Photoshop, by the way. This is actual. <laughs> of course, just imagine, okay, a silver-tongued Argentinian in the shoulder of a crude military guy who just got out of jail after having a couple of bloody coup d'etats, and 
just speaking in his ear for two years, for full two years. Of course, something had to happen. Of course, this guy ends up writing a book. It's called Caudillo Ejército Pueblo, the Venezuela of Comandante Chavez. This is a very interesting book because it became a, like the, the blueprint of the revolutionaries in Venezuela. They were really taken to that. It was printed in Venezuela by the government. And the title says, Caudillo Ejército Pueblo, which means chief army people, which means the chief and the people using as a transported the army. No institutions, nothing. And then we'll see why the title is, is that. If you see, if you see this, this was taken from a, a the, the book went to one printing only. The reason it went to one printing only was because the first chapter of the book, I'm talking about the Bible for the revolutionaries in Venezuela and Latin America right now. But the first chapter is called The Jewish Problem. So they didn't print it anymore. But they kept it for nine years on government-sponsored websites, like this one. I took this one out only last year. It's been taken out now. But if you, if you notice, I mean, in here it says Liga Nacional Bolchevique Venezolana. It's Bolshevik National League. And at the bottom it says, for the construction of the Socialism Nacional, which if you invert the title, it says the construction of National Socialism. On the left, you see the, the, the spread eagle. And on the right, what it looks like, a, like it, what is not, is actually a, a Nazi flag. But instead of having the swastika in the middle, it has the, uh, the Soviet equipment in, the, in, in there. What, what, what does this actually mean? What this means is that Ceresol's theory was that the extremes, that the real extreme, the extreme right and the extreme left, could actually touch and they could come together. And they could come together against the middle to destroy it and to take over the world. And for this, you don't need a party, you don't need a movement, you don't need a people. You don't need, almost any, you only need one hand. And here's where the Hitler syndrome comes in. You only need one man. That's what Ceresola said. He convinces Chavez that he is that man. That's the reason why sometimes Chavez seems to be a fascist. And next day you say, oh, he's a communist. Because he's both. That's, that, that's the incredible thing. That, that happens over there. Okay, let's keep going because we've got a little stuff to go here. The second act. The second act happens in 1997. In 1997, let's see what happened in 1997. Okay, Jose Altagracia Ramirez Navas is the founder of the Venezuelan Communist Party. Of course, as a good communist, he names his three sons Vladimir Ilyich and Lenin. <laughs> now, 
Illich would become very famous <laughs> as a codenamed terrorist named Carlos, better known as a jackal, the darling of the radical Islamic regimes who since 1994 remains in jail in France, sentenced, sentenced to a life in prison. Now, for all these years, there was a mystery for all of those who did any analysis of Chavez's, why one of the first letter, if not the first one, that came out of the presidential palace when he took power in 1998, was actually addressed to the jackal. And the only reason we have the letter that was taken through a, 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 a diplomatic channels was because the French Secret Service intercepted it, and that's what we came about the letter. We never understood why a, pre a president who just takes over. I mean, the first letter that he writes, he writes it to a terrorist who is in, in a French prison. I think we're going to find out very soon about that. Also, he gives orders to, the, to his people in the, in the embassy in Paris to take care of the jackal, to take care of his expenses, to take care of his lawyers. By the way, one of his lawyers was the same one that uh, defended uh, uh, this guy that uh, was taken out of the, uh, I forget his name. Klaus right? Barbie. Klaus Barbie, that's right. The same lawyer that defended Klaus Barbie was hired by the Chavez regime to actually defend this guy. And all all the time that this has been happening, he has been, uh, every time there's been a meeting with the, with, 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 the, with the French, always, because we found out about this from the French eventually, that always the release of the jackal always comes up when he talks with the French. If they talk oil, if they talk politics, if they talk because they're going to build a subway, whatever, always say, well, and what about releasing the jackal to me? Because I need the guy. Wow, I mean, what's his fixation with this guy? He had already, he had a, oops, he had this guy ready to be released to him at one time, only a couple of years ago. He was going to trade him for Ingrid Betancourt. Ingrid Betancourt was a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a prison by the Colombian guerrillas for six years. And Chavez had actually negotiated her release, and she was going to be traded for the jackal. The jackal was going to go to Bolivia, supposedly to spend the rest of his term in Bolivia. Now what happens? Well, Ingrid Betancourt was released in a, in a spectacular move by the Colombian army that immediately the Chavez government said was orchestrated by Mossad. <laughs> this caused Chavez to actually break relations with Colombia to a high cost to Venezuela. I mean, we, if we read about it, we know that this is this has actually been happening, you know. And also, of course, a continued assault against Israel and the international project to delegitimize the state of Israel. The reasons for this are now 
only beginning to show. Now let's go to 1997 to see if we can if, if we can figure out why this is why this happened. 1997, Chavez had 2% of the polls. 2%. And he had to borrow money. He had to actually borrow money to put gas in the Volkswagen to go anywhere. Enters his friends at the Communist Party, founders of the Communist Party, and they decide to activate the Islamic connections of Carlos Illich Ramirez, the jackal. Of course, he agrees. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, the Chavez campaign is awash with money in 1998 to the point that he did not accept, he actually did not accept in 1998 that anybody would give him money to, for the campaign. Because he said, oh, he wanted to remain pure. He had tons of money. It was incredible. He actually he won the election because he had a lot of money. Now, we should remember that after he wins the election, his first trip is to this Arab countries. He goes to Algeria. He goes to Libya, to Iraq, and to Iran. On his way back, he tried to stop in Paris. Or he was going to stop in Paris, but his condition was that he would be allowed to visit the jackal at the prison. When he was told by the French that he couldn't do that, he skipped that, uh, that stop. So he didn't stop there. Now, I think it's kind of, if we can deduct from this that Maybe the great elector of Chavez was Jackal and Islamic friends. Maybe we can now start connecting the dots of what is actually happening. Now, the consequences of this are of this incomprehensible union uh, of union with Islamic radicals are now starting to become clear. We have uh, direct flights from Caracas to Tehran and Damascus. And this is going, this is being flown in a 747 and a, a 340 Airbus, uh, non-stop flights. And the only reason they leave from the Caracas airport is because that way they could be deemed to be civilian flights. But nobody actually knows who comes in and who goes out, what materials they load on those planes, or what they unload is actually a mystery till the day. As a matter of fact, uh, we tried in the in the community to book a flight to say, well, let's find out if this thing actually flies over there and it carries regular passengers. And we said, yeah, this uh, uh, in a hotel run by the government, there is a, a, a an agency that will sell you the tickets, the only one. And we go over there and we say, listen, we want to go on such and such date, like for example, uh, the third of July. And they said, no, no, we only have a ticket for the 15th of September. Mm. I said, okay, well, so the 15th of September. Uh, I want to come back then the, the 25th of September. So no, no, we only have a flight to return the 25th of December. <laughs> I said, okay, 
eventually we said, you know what, we, let's try this. Okay, fine. Give me the ticket for September and I'll stay there for four months and come back in December. Okay, they say, okay it's $8,000. I said, what are you talking about $8,000? I mean, I could go to, uh, to Luft with Lufthansa and fly over there and Air France, whatever, do the same thing for, for $1,000. Well, so you understand that they, they don't really are interested that you actually fly there or with them anyway. Now, what's happening there? They can move from there, they can move people. And it's interesting that now we have the interior minister is Tarek Alaysan. We have the honor in Venezuela to have the only interior minister in the Western world that is in a no-fly list. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, isn't that fantastic? <laughs> the, other, the other guy is Elias Hawa, also an Arab. He's actually the vice president of Venezuela right now. This guy was so, is so radical that Chavez sent him to Argentina, to his friends in Argentina, to be ambassador in Argentina, and they didn't accept him. That's how radical this guy was. But he's the vice president of Venezuela. Of course, documentations. People come from Iran, from Syria, they come to Venezuela. From there, they, they can do whatever they want. And, and here comes another thing. Another one of these uh, 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 things that happen because of this. Hezbollah, Venezuela. This guy in here, Teodoro Darnot, seen here on the left. Okay, he's the founder. He, he actually was a mastermind of two bombs, one that was actually, they actually exploded at the American embassy in Caracas, the second one that was for the uh, Israeli embassy in Caracas, uh, was not able, they were not able to deliver it because the cab driver got lost. <laughs> <laughs> but the first one actually exploded. It, 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 and what happened? This guy, he wanted to become the first jihad martyr in Latin America. So he actually came public and confessed. Nobody caught him, actually. He just came forward and confessed. He says, I put the bombs, I did this, I... So they had no choice but to put him in jail, of course, I mean, if he confesses publicly. So they uh, condemn him to the minimum uh, sentence in a in a terrorist charge, which is 10 years, and he will probably be out any time. Now, this happened in 2006, so he will probably be out by good, because good behavior any time. <laughs> but what happened? The guy is not in jail. I mean, he is running Hezbollah, Venezuela, from the political police headquarters in Caracas. He's there. I mean, we actually got a newspaper guy that is a friend of us to visit him in there, and, and he said, he took his, that picture, he took it with a cell phone, actually, in his cell, and he said, the guy has computers, has uh, fax machines, has cell phones, so he runs Hezbollah from the Venezuelan political police headquarters. Wonderful. Now, this, this picture on the left could have been taken in Gaza, or could have been taken in, in the southern Lebanon, but no was taken in Caracas. This is one of the paramilitary groups uh, that actually uh, 
that run around Caracas armed and they are supporters of Chavez and they are supported by Chavez. On the left, on the right hand side, well, why not have a, why not sell my camp, my camp at the Caracas airport? This picture was taken there. Now, Chavez is now a hero in the, in the Arab world. The consequences for our hemisphere are unpredictable, or maybe they are predictable. I want to show you a, a video now. Please, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's subtitled because it's in Spanish. So please pay attention to the subtitles so you could understand what it's saying. muy sencillo, no estamos subestimando a los pueblos del Medio Oriente, simplemente que en Venezuela la lucha es distinta, la lucha va a ser de cuerpo a cuerpo, combate cara a cara y aquí serán derrotados, porque nosotros en cada barrio, en cada esquina, en cada caserío, en cada bloque, en cada cloaca, en cada esquina, habrá una trinchera de lucha y derrotaremos al igual que lo hizo Vietnam al ejército norteamericano. La diferencia está en que acá la lucha está recta. Nosotros conocemos nuestro pueblo. <coughs> Evidentemente que no somos organizaciones sociales y de lucha al igual que la FARC-EP y que el PLN, ejército del pueblo. Bueno, evidentemente que para nosotros es un honor y un orgullo, este, una vez en unas entrevistas lo reafirmamos, el sitio más humilde, más honrado y más heroico de Francia es el calabozo donde está el comandante Miguel Permírez. Desde acá, nuestro saludo a nuestro hermano, a nuestro compañero, y consideramos que esa debe ser la actitud de cualquier internacionalista o de cualquier revolucionario que sienta dolor ante cualquier injusticia en el mundo, como lo manifestaba el comandante Ernesto Che Guevara. Bueno, un saludo más sobre todo al pueblo de Palestina, al pueblo del Líbano, a redoblar la yihad, lucha diaria, constante y sistemática que no le pertenece solamente al Medio Oriente, sino a los pueblos del mundo. La lucha no solamente es religiosa, la lucha no solamente es política, sino que la lucha es contra el imperialismo norteamericano y los imperialismos aliados, como es el Estado terrorista y sionista de Israel. Contra ellos, todas las organizaciones del mundo unidos para derrotarlos, con las armas y las armas con capucha, sin capucha, por el que atacarlo donde quiera que se encuentre, así sea en sus casas.
even in your own homes. That's 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 how they finish. I mean, this is this is a this is a group that uh, everybody knows who they are. I mean, we, we actually send the interior minister uh, their names of everybody and who they live, where they live. Of course, nothing is going to happen. Now, he, he, here is something that happened now at the World Cup. At the World Cup, in the intermission, there was a commercial that was played in government channels. Watch this. Academic articles and in the media, 
and is really somebody who's uh, been brave to dig deeply into this uh, web of radical Islam and anti-Semitism. So it's an honor that you're here. Professor Nisman will speak uh, in Spanish, and uh, uh, Shimon Samuels uh, graciously agreed to help uh, in the translation. Thank you. Argentina fue víctima del terrorismo fundamentalista islámico en dos oportunidades, en los años 1992 el atentado fue a la sede de la Embajada de Israel y en el año 1994, concretamente el 18 de julio, a la sede de la AMIA, donde eh, el atentado dejó 85 muertos y más de 300 heridos. Este es el hecho que a mí me toca investigar. Luego de varios años de investigación en el atentado de la sede de la AMIA pudimos lograr eh, probar que el mismo fue ordenado, planificado y financiado por las máximas autoridades de la República Islámica de Irán. Later we were able to uh, substantiate the fact that both of these attacks were ordered and planned by uh, the, the Islamic Republic of Iran. La decisión de cometer este atentado se tomó un año antes, el 14 de agosto de 1993, en la ciudad iraní de Mayado. The decision to make these attacks uh, took place uh, on the 14th of August, uh, 1993. En esta reunión participaron el ex presidente iraní Razanjani, el ex canciller Berayati, el ex ministro de informaciones Farajian, el ex jefe de la Guardia Revolucionaria de apellido Rezati y el ex jefe de la Fuerza Al-Quds, Bajin. Participants in that meeting included the former president of Iran, Rafsanjani, the former minister Berayati, the representatives of the Revolutionary Guards and the Al-Quds. Todas estas personas están con pedido de captura internacional aceptado por Interpol desde el año 2007. Since 2007, these people are under a red notice that is international arrest warrant. ¿Cuál fue el motivo por el cual se decidió atacar la Argentina? Esto fue porque Argentina decidió interrumpir contratos que tenía de transferencia de tecnología nuclear a la República Islámica de Irán. Why was this decision taken to attack Argentina? It was because Argentina had intervened in an agreement for purchase of nuclear materials to Iran. In the 80s, Argentina was encountered in the movement of countries not aligned, and as such, had a very good relationship commercial with Iran. In the 1980s, Argentina, as a member of the non-aligned bloc, had good relations with Iran. 
para esa época le proveía, como dijimos, tecnología nuclear, sumado a que países como Francia y Alemania habían sancionado a Irán y no le vendían esta tecnología que este país tanto necesitaba. Durante esa época también eh, hubo muchos técnicos iraníes que se capacitaron en el Instituto Balseiro en Bariloche, un instituto de avanzada en materia nuclear en Argentina. During that period, many Iranian technicians were being trained in an institute in Bariloche, in Argentina. Eh, una vez que asume el gobierno de Carlos Menem en los años 90, hay un cambio en la política exterior y se decide que Argentina, por consejo de Estados Unidos, interrumpa estos contratos de suministro de tecnología nuclear. Uh, with the arrival of President uh, Carlos Menem, there was a change in Argentine foreign policy and the United States uh, requested that the uh, sale of nuclear materials to Iran be stopped. Esto ocurrió en noviembre de 1991 y al poco tiempo se comienza a preparar el primer atentado, el atentado contra la embajada de Israel en Buenos Aires. The decision uh, to stop the trade was in November 91. And this led directly to the decision to attack the Israeli embassy in 1992. Luego de este atentado, Argentina decide eh, que estos contratos que habían sido suspendidos decide convertir la suspensión en una cancelación definitiva y al poco tiempo comienza a prepararse y a idearse el atentado contra la sede de la AMIA. A little after the attack on the Israeli embassy, Argentina decided to convert the suspension of uh, this trade nuclear materials to a full cancellation and that's where the decision was taken to go on to the second attack. El brazo ejecutor de este atentado fue como lo hace habitualmente Irán que se valió de su brazo armado la organización terrorista libanesa Hezbollah. The executive arm of this attack was chosen by Iran it's El grupo estuvo encabezado por eh, Imad Munier, que era el jefe de operaciones especiales de esa organización. En el año 2005 pudimos individualizar al inmolado a la persona que condujo la camioneta y coche bomba que se estrelló contra la sede de la AMIA. In the year 2005, was identified the person who uh, drove the, uh, the car bomb uh, to the Viajamos a Detroit, donde eh, vivían y viven eh, dos de los hermanos del colado y obtuvimos las pruebas restantes que nos faltaban para evitar esta circunstancia. In the year 2005, uh, uh, Dr. Nisman went to Detroit, uh, where the two brothers of the person who drove this truck, who was burnt in the uh, Uh, in the explosion of living, and there they got the evidence that this was in fact the person. El grupo operativo quienes secundaron y apoyaron al, al inmolado estuvo integrado por entre 4 y 5 personas que ingresaron eh, 18 días antes de cometer el atentado a Buenos Aires y eran todos miembros del Hezbollah. The uh, commando group was uh, consisted of five to six persons who entered Argentina 18 days before uh, the attack. They were all from Hezbollah. 
En Buenos Aires hubo una persona que tuvo un rol preponderante en este ataque, que fue el ex agregado cultural de la embajada iraní en Buenos Aires, Moshen Rabani. Uh, a pivotal role in this attack was the uh, former charge, um, uh, um, cultural charge, uh, at the uh, Iranian embassy in Buenos Aires, Nero Monson Rabani participó en la reunión de 1993 en Mayat, donde se tomó la decisión. Él fue quien llevó el blanco la decisión de atacar la sede de Arabia. En 1993, it was uh, Rabani who participated in the meeting in Mashhad, uh, where it was decided to attack the Arabia. Cuando vuelve de esa reunión, unos meses antes del atentado, es filmado por la fuerza de inteligencia argentina buscando eh, en una concesionaria, en un negocio de venta de autos, una camioneta idéntica a la que explotó la AMIA. When he returned to Argentina, he was filmed by Argentine intelligence entering a, a car concession agency uh, where the truck was uh, purchased. Y luego tuvo, entre otras actividades, tuvo a su cargo el control del traspaso de la camioneta momentos antes de que la tomara el inmolado y que explotara. He also, a few moments before the explosion, was uh, was control. He, he monitored the uh, the action um, where the the suicide uh, driver blew up. Pero la actividad de Rabani había comenzado en Argentina muchísimo antes que el atentado de la AMIA fuera siquiera planeado. The activities of Rabani began in Argentina long before the uh, planned attack. Argentina tiene, o tiene el triste privilegio de haber sido el primer país que Irán decidió infiltrar en toda Sudamérica. Argentina tiene el privilegio de ser el primer país que fue infiltrado por los iranianos en Latinoamérica. Todo esto que ahora vemos que ocurre en muchos países, como bien explicó Sammy Eber en Venezuela, también en Bolivia, en Nicaragua y en Ecuador, comenzó mucho antes en, en Argentina. Uh, as Sami Epo has just explained uh, the process in uh, Venezuela, similarly this happened in Bolivia, Nicaragua, uh, Ecuador, but the first of uh, these countries to be the victim was Argentina. In the year 1983, apenas unos años después de que triunfara la revolución islámica, Irán decide enviar a un primer emisario chiita a Buenos Aires. In 1983, after the Islamic uh, Revolution, uh, Iran decided to send a Shiite representative to Buenos Aires. Esta persona fue Rabani y tenía como misión formar cuadros de apoyo a la Revolución Islámica. This uh, person was Rabani, and his function was to create um, uh, groups that would be supportive of the Islamic Revolution. Cumplir, eh, en otras palabras, lo que establece la constitución iraní, que es exportar esa revolución eh, a cualquier lugar del mundo por cualquier medio. En los años 80 la comunidad eh, islámica chiita en Argentina era una comunidad pequeña y por lo general pacífica. In the 1980s, the um, presence of Shiites in Argentina was really small and really peaceful. La función de Rabani fue, en primer lugar, detectar en la mezquita donde él se, se asentó aquellos elementos que tenían eh, una predisposición o que eran muy proclives 
a participar de una visión extrema o fundamentalista del Islam. It was also Rabbani's uh, um, role to detect in the mosque those who had a predisposition to participate in extreme Islamic action. Simultáneamente, la embajada iraní en Buenos Aires se fue convirtiendo en una estación de inteligencia con la llegada de muchísimos agentes eh, iraníes. At the same time, the Iranian embassy in Buenos Aires was becoming an intelligence center with the participation of many spies. They hid their true role by taking out other civil algunos trabajaban, se dividían en grupos, algunos eran taxistas, que era una actividad que les permitía realizar tareas de observación sin levantar sospechas, por lo general nadie llama la atención de un taxista parado en alguna esquina. Some of these, one of these groups became taxi drivers so that they could observe and not raise any suspicions. Otros se anotaban en facultades, por lo general en la carrera de medicina, que son las carreras más largas, que llevan más tiempo en Buenos Aires, y esta era una época donde eh, eh, no se exigía en la facultad rendir una determinada cantidad de materias por año, con lo cual uno se podía anotar y constituirse o ser un, un estudiante crónico que nadie le iba a decir nada. Some registered in the Faculty of Medicine, which, uh, because it has a se several years of courses, meant that they could have a, a long run, and uh, they weren't demanded to do any particular exams or uh, programs uh, year by year. De esa manera encontraban los justificativos a su presencia en Buenos Aires. Y otros trabajaban en lo que llamamos eh, empresas iraníes de cobertura. Eran empresas eh, fabulosas porque pagaban excelentes sueldos los horarios de trabajo eran muy cortos y todas daban pérdidas, no vendían absolutamente nada. Esas personas fueron las que fueron llevando a los miembros de la comunidad islámica a una visión extrema del Islam eh, muy eh, similar con la que proclamaba Rabani, este agregado cultural. These groups uh, were bringing a certain perception of Islam which was very radical uh, to the Muslims that were in Buenos Aires. Estos grupos luego, muchos años después, fueron utilizados como apoyo local para los atentados que se decidieron eh, a posteriori de todo esto. It was these groups that formed the, um, the hinterland of support uh, for the attacks years later. Los atentados terroristas en Buenos Aires en la década de los 90 no fueron los únicos. Irán cometió muchos otros atentados también en Europa para esta época, todos bajo la presidencia de, de Rafsanjani. Así podemos mencionar la matanza de militantes del Partido de los Revolucionarios Kurdo en Míkonos, un bar en Alemania. Such as the killing of Kurdish officials in El asesinato del disidente iraní en Francia, Chapur Batiar. The assassination of the former Iranian leader, 
Bakhtia en Paris. En Suiza, otro disidente iraní de apellido Radhavi. Todo esto fue determinado no por los servicios de inteligencia, sino por la justicia de los respectivos países, Francia, Alemania, Suiza. Por los tribunales superiores de justicia de ese país. Y en todo se determinó lo mismo, que la mecánica, la forma de toma de decisión fue igual, con este grupo de, eh, que integraba el expresidente y otros miembros que actuaron en la ciudad de Mayat para el atentado de Lamia, la mecánica fue igual en cuanto a la toma de decisión para los restantes atentados. La actividad terrorista iraní no se limitó a estos años eh, y ha seguido y recientemente lo hemos comprobado con un caso concreto acá en Estados Unidos. Also during those years uh, there was even a, a, an attack in the United States. Hace aproximadamente 20 días, un jurado de Brooklyn encontró culpables a dos ciudadanos de Guyana de intentar volar los tanques de combustible del aeropuerto Kennedy. Um, Hace dos semanas. Two weeks ago, a group in Brooklyn were identified and arrested, uh, implicated in an attempt to blow up a gas. Um, el hecho eh, había sido intentado en el año 2007. Uh, this attack was, uh, in 2007. Del juicio surgió que uno de los responsables, uno de los condenados de apellido Kadir, desde el año 80, era un agente de inteligencia iraní. Um, the, uh, in, during the, the, the trial, it came out that one of these, the name Kadir, uh, had been involved in, uh, in such actions and was an intelligence agent of Iran. Se secuestró documentación que probaba que desde el año 1980 enviaba información sobre las Fuerzas Armadas de Guyana y otras instancias más al embajador iraní en Venezuela. En el año 2007 fue allanada la residencia de Kadir, que era, fue un parlamentario y un alcalde de una provincia de ese país. Fue allanada por el FBI. Okay, the FBI in 2007 uh, invested the home of uh, this uh, Gayanan, who uh, was a city councillor uh, of some small town in, uh, in Guyana. In his house, he found a lot of documentation that proved he was a Iranian agent, and fundamentally, he had contact for more than 15 years with Rabani, the brain of the attack in Argentina. 
They found documentation which showed that indeed Kadir was an agent uh, of Iran and that uh, he had been um, in contact for the past 15 years with uh, Rabani, the person responsible for the army. Actualmente, mientras yo estoy acá, mi equipo de trabajo en Buenos Aires está analizando justamente esa documentación secuestrada y que prueba que hay mucha relación entre eh, un atentado y otro, fundamentalmente por el mismo grupo de iraníes que estuvieron detrás del mismo. At this uh, very moment, uh, Dr. Nisman's team in Buenos Aires is analyzing this material in order to match up and show the connections between the various uh, attacks. Volviendo al atentado en Argentina, hemos obtenido, como ya dije, de Interpol, eh, la máxima prioridad de búsqueda de eh, ocho iraníes, pero Irán se niega a la Returning to the uh, Amia attack, um, Argentina managed to uh, receive from Interpol the, the maximum, highest level of uh, um, arrest warrant and demand for extradition, but Iran is unresponsive. No los entrega, los protege en su país y le da cargo público. La provocación llega a un punto tal que una de las personas que está con máxima prioridad de búsqueda, Bahiri, que le mencioné que era el jefe del grupo Al-Quds, fue nombrado ministro de defensa y se pasea tranquilamente hoy por varios países del mundo. Uh, the most sought after of this terrorist group, Rahidi, uh, has been um, uh, placed by Ahmadinejad as Minister of Defense, and therefore he is now immune to travel away. Simultaneamente que Irán desoye los reclamos de Interpol y de toda la comunidad internacional, eh, penetra, encontró una puerta de ingreso muy fácil a América Latina. At the same time as Iran rejects uh, these uh, arrest warrants, uh, it is penetrating uh, freely into the Americas. In estos vuelos de los que nos hablaba eh, Eppel, que cubren la ruta Teherán, Damasco, Caracas, ingresan de acuerdo a la información que tenemos miembros de Hezbollah, miembros de la Guardia Revolucionaria de los Padrans y miembros del grupo Al Quds. On those flights, which uh, Sami Akro described, um, agents are coming in through uh, from Tehran, through Damascus, to Caracas, uh, of Hezbollah, of, um, of the, the Revolutionary Guard, and the Pastorans, who are um, the Al Quds group, the Pastorans are denoted by the United States uh, uh, as terrorist organization. Recientemente el Pentágono, recientemente hace aproximadamente dos meses, ha dado un informe donde da cuenta de todos estos ingresos de, de personas que vienen indudablemente a instalar redes terroristas y a realizar tareas de inteligencia en América Latina. According to the Pentagon, some few months ago, um, said that these groups have come to set up terrorist networks throughout the America. De la información que contamos, sabemos que en estos vuelos no tienen que realizar trámites migratorios ni aduaneros. Con lo cual, un ciudadano iraní o un miembro de Hezbollah que ingresa a Venezuela y obtiene documentos de dicho país, eh, por la legislación del Mercosur se puede trasladar libremente desde el Canal de Panamá hasta la República Argentina. Uh, any Iranian or Hezbollah uh, 
agent who comes on these flights and enters Venezuela in this way receives a document that allows him free passage anywhere within the Mercosur, um, a free trade union, uh, anywhere from the Panama Canal down to Argentina. Pero no, no es solo eso, por ejemplo, eh, Bolivia tenía una sola, una sola embajada en Medio Oriente que estaba en Egipto. Hace unos años la, la cerró la de Egipto y abrió una en Teherán. No solo eso, pero por ejemplo, Bolivia tenía solo una embajada en el Medio Oriente, que fue en Cairo, y ha cerrado esa embajada y se volvió a Teherán. Nicaragua, en términos geopolíticos, es un país menor tiene la embajada iraní más grande de todo la de todo América. Nicaragua, which is uh, geopolitically uh, very small, has the largest Iranian embassy in the Americas. Y una de las más grandes del mundo de las embajadas iraníes se encuentra en, en Nicaragua. One of the largest Iranian embassies in the world is in Managua. Creo que es momento de que todos aquellos que luchamos por un mundo libre y sin terrorismo eh, hagamos oír nuestra voz y pongamos esta situación en conocimiento de todas aquellas autoridades para que tomen medidas para que esta penetración iraní ya en Latinoamérica eh, no nos agarre tarde y no tengamos que decir que no pudo ser detenida a tiempo. Muchas gracias. In all each of those countries that are targeted, uh, so that we will never be told that we, we stood by and let it happen to us.